When I was seven or eight years old, our family nearly went bankrupt. You see, my dad wasn't the best with money. Mom was the CFO. Dad was superb at his job. His profession was a finishing drywaller for mostly residential homes. New construction builders would hire him to put up drywall and finish the interior of the new home before the walls had to be painted. But he also loved guns, and possibly more so than a paycheck. Every now and then, my mom would lose her mind because dad would come home with a new rifle or a 22 caliber 9-clip semi-automatic Ruger pistol as partial or full payment for his work. I recall some epic arguments in our kitchen. My mom would coyly ask him, for example, how are we going to pay the electricity bill with a gun? You get the point. Yet, to add to this, in the late 70s, my dad and his brother, who were jointly in business together, doing drywall, and his brother left him one week. I mean, he literally packed his family and moved out of the state overnight, leaving my parents with the company's debt. It was rough. I will never forget the stress that I particularly witnessed with my mom, and it profoundly made me aware of what happens if you don't watch your finances, maybe even your relatives. If you've been tuned into this season of Beyond My Day Job, titled The Craft Beer Inquiries, we're covering the behind-the-scenes aspects of the craft beer industry. A central focus of my interviews with brewers and others in this community is to understand how people make money in a maturing, crowded, and highly cost capital industry. While I struck gold and had the privilege to learn about some financial health disciplines with today's guest, Maria Perriman. She wrote a book to help the brewer community so they don't jump into commercial beer making without knowing how to plan for and apply sound financial practices that essentially is going to help them make beer for longer and profitably. My name is Lonnie Miller, producer and host of Beyond My Day Job, and you're listening to Season 5, The Craft Beer Inquiries. Let's talk beer and money smarts with Maria. My name is Maria Pierman. I am a CPA and I specialize in beverage alcohol. I'm headquartered in Portland, Oregon. And uh, well, my office is headquartered in Portland, Oregon. I live in Bend, Oregon. And I've uh, focused on beverage alcohol for over a dozen years and um, really enjoy the, the work that I get to do with Brewers, distillers, cideries, meaderies, kombucheries, is that a thing? Um, to help them with their financial discipline. I'm really curious, kind of what got you into this, you know, focus, you know, from a CPA standpoint, but why this niche part of the world? When I started my accounting career, I was at a public accounting firm that was a generalist firm. So we did everything. And I worked in the tax department and um, some of the clients, it was in Portland. So we had a lot of breweries in Portland and some of the clients that I worked on were breweries. So I was looking at it from a tax perspective. And what I saw often was that they would spend more money at the end of the year, getting their books cleaned up than they did on the tax return. So that told me that, you know, these folks are going all year long without any visibility into any real visibility into how their business is performing. So I saw there to be, you know, an opening in the market for some type of higher level accounting person that could work specifically with breweries, know their industry. But I understood also that many of the breweries, and this was, you know, early, early mid 2000s. So a lot of these breweries were hitting the first wave of crafts last resurgence. 
And, you know, they were small. They didn't have the need or the resources to pay for a full-time controller or CFO. So I just saw an opportunity to be a fractional CFO, essentially, to these folks. And, um, and I thought that having a specialty in a particular industry would be a differentiator that allowed me to kind of cut through versus the larger firms that were out there. You know, if you, if you start your business as an as a individual, and I was young at the time, and you know what what would make someone take me seriously? I'm not going to be able to compete with the you know longevity of these longer established firms, but if I could know the industry and if I could talk the industry and I could be a better business partner, then I thought that that would help me cut through, which it did. Um, so I actually left that public accounting firm and I started my own business with a focus on beverage alcohol. And um, the the theory worked, and um, you know the the brewing industry is very collaborative. So a lot of people would talk to others and share my name, and so business grew. And what first started as um, basically kind of consulting to these breweries and helping them understand their finance, that ended up growing, and then eventually um, I was building a firm, and it grew to about fifteen people was our highest headcount. But we would do bookkeeping and payroll and taxes and consultative work, um, strategy within the industry. So it it just kind of took on a life of its own, and um, and so that that ride went for about seven years, and then I uh, merged my practice back in with the original firm where I left. Um, they also had had a focus on food and beverage, but they really didn't have a core presence in beer. So it's kind of a complimentary thing where my firm could come in and, and fill that need. And also it gave me an opportunity to expand the services, resources, and scope that I could handle with, with our beverage beer clients. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how it evolved. I just saw a need and, and had an idea and said, let's give it a try. <laughs> Self-ambition and put a position for yourself, found the niche, which is very akin to what the craft brewers are doing themselves. So that's a nice parallel. You're yeah. in one of the hotbeds of the United States of the, you know, craft beer scene. Um, how many just rough, you know, magnitude of order? How many, how many brewers have you advised or, you know, supported? Oh. You know? Around a hundred. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, maybe more. Um, yeah. You know, it's been, it's been a lot of years. So <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, specifically in my day to day, like if any particular day I'm talking to any, let's say between three and 10 breweries. Okay. Um, and then the scope of what I do always fluctuates depending on who the client is and what their needs are. And so, uh, you know, I'm not working with a hundred breweries every single day, but, um, over, over the years, I'd say that's probably about the number. Got it. Okay. So I have to say, you know, I had the pleasure of discovering you and finding you on the Brewers Association, which is, you know, for the uh, beer brewing industry, the small and medium-sized craft brewers. It is kind of their trade association and advocate. And you had a book that I ran across on there, and it's titled Small Brewery Finance, Accounting Principles, and Planning for the Craft Brewer. And very exciting to be able to realize this because what you write to, and I want, want you to share with this in a moment, it's really capturing a lot of the experience that you've just, you know, introduced yourself with. So 
first of all, I just got to say, you know, people that I've run into who write books, A, it's a different level of ambition and persistence and everything else that goes into that. But um, why did you write this book? Um, again, I think it was just recognizing a hole in the market. And um, I actually, you know, had seen other books about breweries in the brewing industry be published. And I thought, oh, that's really cool that there's something specifically for this industry. And then I also recognize, of course, through my lens, there's nothing for finance. And so I thought, man, I, I think, you know, this is, you know, if somebody's got a book on their shelf about uh, building a lab or something like that, you know, and they're a brewer and they own a brewery, it makes perfect sense to me that they should also have a book about how to run your business, you know, for a sustainable business. So really, I just saw the idea. And um, I, one of my clients knew someone at the BA who's in their publishing division, put me in contact and I said, hey, this is my idea. And they said, well, that's been on our short list of topics. That's really cool. We'd like to, you know, think about that. And, um, and yeah, I kind of just went from there. Got it. How long did it take you to write roughly? Oh, probably about a year, maybe a little more, but I'd say, you know, half of that time was writing. Well, half of the time was writing, half the time was editing. And then the time spent writing the first half of that was just like trying to get an idea of how to begin. <laughs> so you know, it was probably only 25% of the total time was actually spent doing the writing. Got it. Okay. I hear that a lot. The editing is always a huge consumption of the pie for getting it published. <laughs> Okay, so for the for context and for the simpletons out there listening and being voyeuristic on this industry or the players and doers and creators that are part of it, what's at risk for small independent brewers? Just some top of mind things that you're trying to keep them from falling into. A lot of people get into this business because they're passionate about brewing. And so they're starting it with a lot of their personal assets on the line. So truly what's at risk is, in most cases, one's own livelihood. So, you know, I've, I've come across breweries who have um, used their retirement plans, their, their 401ks to start a brewery. That's one way to fund it. And I certainly don't recommend that because, you know, you really, they're just some things that you, you don't mess with. <laughs> Um, and even if you think that you brew a really great beer, I just don't put your retirement money on the line. So there's that. And then, you know, even if you do have bank funding or outside funders, quite often there will be personal guarantees tied to any loans and personal guarantees mean that if the company defaults, then the creditor has access to your personal assets. And so, I mean, frankly, you know, worst case scenario, your house could go away. So there's a lot that's at risk for these folks. Got it. Have you seen a recurring theme of, um, let's say mishaps, <laughs> um, in terms of financial planning or discipline, um, I want to talk to you about a couple of specific items that you bring up in your book, but if you had to characterize a couple of patterns that you see over and over when things unfortunately go South, um, what would this you say? Is this has subsided a little bit since the industry has matured more, but uh, especially, you know, back in those, you know, let's say 2004 through 2012 days when it felt like everybody was starting a brewery, it was totally the shoot first, aim second method. And um, just going into it with so much enthusiasm and lack of awareness 
Um, so that absolutely can get you in trouble. I guess one thing that does still perpetuate that I see quite often is um, a couple folks will get together, they'll decide to start a brewery, they get corporate papers drawn up, that is to say like your bylaws or your, uh, your operating agreement. And they do that before they've fundraised. So then they're in the situation where they brought in investors and they've got corporate documents that were written for, you know, under one set of circumstances, but it doesn't necessarily address things that might be an issue now that you have other parties involved. So I think jumping the gun on, you know, getting your corporation fully baked and then bringing on other people into the organization, that's something that I still see quite frequently. And that's problematic because um, you get into situations that you never foresaw when you were writing the documents or your attorney was writing the documents. And so um, it becomes a very difficult divorce to unwind. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. So just trying to be maybe a little more flexible about what your business model is going to be, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be a little flexible and, and you know, know who's going to be involved before all the T's are crossed and the I's dotted on the paperwork, because you likely will have some, some horse trading there going on between parties. Got it. Okay. All right. So related to this and some disciplined thinking and planning, you uh, want to call um, attention to a couple of items that your book in your in the book's abstract or the synopsis calls out. But you talk about pricing models and pro formas, and um, I wonder if you can elaborate on those two items and what they do for somebody as you know the person putting their livelihood on the line. So pricing models has to do with the strategy of. Uh, presenting your product in a market and um, pricing model being uh, where does my product sit on the shelf in terms of a, a price? And, you know, are you going to be a value brand? Are you going to be a premium brand? Are you somewhere in the middle? Where do you lie? And then of course that affects the volume that you'll sell because the higher price products are more than likely going to sell lower volume. So, um, it's all about kind of finding your niche. And, and so even though pricing model is a financial concept, it's also very closely tied to strategic marketing, uh, positioning decisions. So it, um, it really is pricing for profitability. And, um, you know, you do see folks who decide to go the value brand route. And so they have a low price point, but, then sometimes they get into situations where there's no margin attached to a unit that they sell, which is just, you, you can't do that. You have to attach some margin. That is your price that you're receiving minus your COGS is your margin. You have to have something left over for everything that leaves your shelf, I believe. Um, so that's important. And it's a strategic decision about how, how the business is going to uh, be presented to the consumer. Another thing about pricing that's important to remember is your geographic spread. And so if, you, if you're a California brewery and you decide to sell your product in Delaware, you need to have a pricing model that's going to allow for all the you know, extra expenses that go in, into that with freight, et cetera. And also you need to remember that your volume is going to be lower the further you get away from home 
I mean, that's just a truism. You are not going to sell as much the further away you are from your home market. So uh, there's a lot of elements to pricing that play into a successful business model. Got it. And pro formas, what's, what's, what is that and what's that doing for somebody? A pro forma is a forecasted set of financial statements. Um, quite often you're going to see this with startups. So if a brewery is starting up and they are shopping their idea to a bank to get funding, the bank is going to want to see pro forma financials. That means your make-believe financials for what you think is going to happen over the next X amount of years. And it's usually three years. So generally with pro formas, you're showing what we think our income statement, balance sheet, and cash flows will look like. It's usually monthly over the next 12 months and then annually for year two and year three. So that's what uh, performance are. Just a different way to say forecasting. <laughs> Forecast, got it. Yeah, so you can use it as a way to convince and persuade, uh, please loan me some money as well. You're up front. Yeah, or investors, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. So there is a central theme and you mentioned this phrase, right? Price for profitability, which I love because this is such a highly capital and you know, let alone competitive. And you talked about, you know, between when everyone was wanting to get into the scene between 04 and, and 12. So I am just curious, kind of, a you know, from your vantage point, big economics question, um, how do brewers make money? You know, not just top line revenue, but, you know, how do, how do you see them being profitable? And the second part of that question might be, do you see a case where people just are running, you know, at a deficit for, you know, longer than what you would have expected, despite having a tasty beer on the shelf or in the tap room? Um, well, on the first question about how to be successful, I think it really is tied to what business model you pursue. Um, and just broad strokes on that, you could have a tasting room where you're selling beer over your own counter, and that's highly lucrative. However, you're also uh, you also have a ceiling on how much your revenues can be because you only have X number of seats in your bar. You're open for X number of hours a day. Um, yeah, so there, there's a kind of a finite limit to that. Now you could do multiple locations, um, but you're just kind of replicating the same thing over and over. So you, you can be very successful in that model. You also can be very successful with wholesale and going, you know, selling through a distributor um, but the economics of it are different. You're not going to make as much per unit or per barrel or whatever metric you want to use if you're use, if you're selling through a wholesaler, which is fine. You just have to adapt. Um, and then folks who do self-distribution for those who are in states where they can do self self-distribution, again, that's that's kind of great because you can take out the the distributor's cut, which is usually 30%. But then there's this whole other host of factors. You know, you're having to prepare your own fleet and, and maintain your own fleet. So in all of those three options, there are three different businesses that you're running. And to be profitable and successful, you need to understand those different business models. So someone who has um, who has worked in a brewery and they've and then they decide to open their own and they've been a brewer and just worked on the production side and they're used to dealing with wholesalers, but they've never really worked behind the bar. That person probably shouldn't get into a tasting room situation, even though it's lucrative. So, um, you know, it's a tough question, but I would say really hone in on your business model and then discipline 
Um, discipline with understanding benchmarks. So one example of that might be your sales and marketing budget. You know, have a percentage where you say, this is our metric. We're going to spend 9% on sales and marketing and really be very diligent about holding fast to that line. Um, so that, yeah, yeah. Th those are my thoughts on- Got it. Uh, no, those are big. Okay. Yeah, the discipline yeah. piece. And the other part of the question, because I've heard where some people just are running in the red for quite a while, they're still in business, right? But they're just really not turning a profit. So they're still, you know, waiting for that conversion uh, to profit. Any observations on that in terms of some examples of where you've seen people run um, fundamentally at a, you know, bottom at, at a deficit, you know, for, for longer than what you would have imagined them to be able to hold up? To sure, it happens. Um... You know, I think normally when that happens, it's folks who have really deep pockets or have access to a lot of capital. So they're not as careful on how they spend their money because they can go get more. Um, so that does happen. I wouldn't say necessarily that I've seen that. I wouldn't say that over the years I've seen that um, that timeline of turning profitable get longer per se. So um but yeah, I mean, usually breweries will turn profitable in about year three. So there's there's kind of a, a long trail where you're going to, when you look at your income statement, you'll be in the red at the end of the day. Um, you know, but that isn't to say necessarily that that's how long it takes to get cash flow positive. Cash flow, cash flow positive and profitability are two separate things. And I think that's important for business owners to understand as well as, um, it, the difference between the two. And a lot of times that comes down to things like depreciation, which is, it's an economic concept, but not a cash expense. And so um, just understanding the interplay of that is, is helpful. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it, I haven't seen that timeline drift further and further out. I think that at one, one um, side factor of the industry maturing is that by and large, people are approaching it more as a business. Again, going back to these days of early 2000s, 2010-ish, everybody was getting into this, not a care in the world, and we're just going to go for it. And, you know, you could make crappy beer and have a crappy business model and still do okay. But um, the, the way that the industry has matured, it really is forcing people to think about it as a business and being more disciplined and sharper with their data. So, you know, it's market forces and the, the business owners have responded. And um, not to say that everybody is winning the game right now, but I think that by and large, people are treating it more as a, as a serious endeavor and uh, respecting the numbers respecting the economics of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's more than just the social and the community and the, you know, social, um, you know, collaboration, you know, with your, you know, midtown crosstown frenemies, et cetera. And, you know, this fun stories that I've heard where people are like, Hey, I, I need a bag of hops. Uh, do anyone over there get, can you guys run one over? Hey, I'm down servers. And they're like, yeah, you know, you know, you know, John and, you know, Sarah can come over. So there is that, that collaborative part, but I love your discipline point. This is, yeah. unless you've got deep pockets, um, you know, don't just do this to have some fun per se, unless, you know, that's really the end game because, you know, the fun ends after, after a certain point. <laughs> I think the industry still is quite collaborative, which is refreshing. And it's one of the reasons why I love the industry. 
at the same time, you know, people recognize that, that it's not just fun and games anymore, right, which is, right. I mean, it's needed that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That sentiment has come out with some of the other brewers and, you know, head brewers that I've talked to specifically, they're like, it's starting to tighten up, right? The, the, yeah, like, yeah maybe not today, John, that's not, I'm, I can't do you a solid. As another thing that I've, uh, I was having a conversation recently with a brewer client and, um, he's been in the industry for decades and decades. And he was reflecting that, uh, as the industry has matured, the people within the industry have also matured. So, you know, again, looking back a couple of decades, you could have kind of picked up anybody who wanted to be a brewer and put them to work. And now the conversation is like, well, where's my 401k? What about my health insurance? You know, it's, and it's nice to see because people, you know, I think if you look back, it's mostly people in their twenties or early part of life and fewer obligations. So they're, happy just to have a fun job. And now it needs, you know, a livable wage, it needs benefits and people are maturing into this and now they've got their own families and kids to take care of. So it just kind of shows you how the industry as a whole is getting more responsible, right. frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good observation. Anything else that, you know, from the book that you, you wrote, um, anything else that you want to share with the audience or encourage, you know, in terms of, you know, any profound takeaways uh, that I haven't uh, brought up with you at this point, Maria? Um, I guess I would just like to impress the, the importance of financial acumen. It's really crucial for any business. And in the book that I wrote, I tried to make it as approachable as possible. I mean, trust me, I have had hundreds of conversations with people who work in the industry about financial topics and everybody's eyes blaze over after about 90 minutes of talking about it. So <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to just do a strict kind of textbook. So the way the book is, is uh, written, it's like the first 40% is a story. So it's just a story about uh, a brewery and it goes kind of from cradle to grave. And within the story, we weave in the topics that are, you know, the technical topics. So you can read the story. And the idea is that that will help people connect with the ideas a little more and, and resonate with their day-to-day -day lives. And then the second 60% of the book is the technical material. So that's where you're going to go to see a graph of the balance sheet and blah, blah, blah. But um, it gives you options, I guess. You know, if, you, if you're more of a narrative person, you can connect with the story. And then you've got the dry material to dive into if and when it's appropriate. But hopefully that's something that, that works for folks. Yeah, no, that's a great style. I've seen that with um, Patrick Lencioni. He's written a series of books on leadership and the discipline that I'm, I'm not going to get it right, but that fictitious leadership C-suite and you read it and you're reading it. And then you realize you're being taught these screw ups or these mishaps on, you know, running an executive team, for example, and then the back part, they say, so if you're paying attention, <laughs> here's <laughs> the do's and don'ts. And these are the frameworks that you should, you know, you know, consider for you, for yourselves. So yeah, nice style. I like that. I like that. Okay. So, you know, shameless plug, how can we find your book? I want to, again, uh, small brewery finance, accounting principles and planning for the craft brewer. Maria yeah, Perlman. you can. Yeah. Yeah, you can find it at the uh, brewersassociation.org, um, Brewers Publications, which is the publishing divisions, or either one of those websites, Amazon as well. And I also will um, say I'm currently writing a book on distillery finance. Um, I was approached by 
the uh, ADI, which is a, a, a trade organization, um, to do a finance book for distillery. So that is in the works and will be published next year. Nice. Congratulations. Thank well, you. Just, just the, like I said, the observation of, you know, people that write books in and of themselves as the persistence and stamina. So good for you <laughs> and good Thank for the you. people that get to benefit from it. So with that, Maria, uh, we'll wrap up. And I just want to thank you again for giving us some financial health, you know, and underscoring the discipline. This is not all fun and games. So it can be, but um, sometimes you, you want to avoid that with some, uh, you know, good practices with finance planning. So <laughs> thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you, Maria. A big shout out and credit to Mike Cardas for the opening guitar riff. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Beyond My Day Job. You'll find it on any of your favorite podcast feeds, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Anchor. And good or bad, leave me a review. I'm genuinely interested in what you think. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.